Welcome to the Quest Express, your passport to immersive travel experiences and cozy conversations. For curious explorers who understand the art of slow travel, we're your go-to podcast. Every few weeks, we touch the heartbeat of a new city where we chat with artists, innovators, historians, and entrepreneurs who make each city come alive. The Quest Express is not just a podcast. It's your ultimate slow travel companion. It's an invitation to begin your own quest. Today, we'll be talking with Chef Bobo, a highly celebrated French chef who taught at the French Culinary Institute. He was a personal chef for Derek Jeter, runs his own catering business, and was hired by an elite school to revitalize their lunch program. Chef Bobo's approach to nutrition is cooking delicious, boldly flavored meals, something he learned from his life in New Orleans. Mardi Gras, the Sazerac, what was the vibe? Because I think when you land in a city, there's like a trademark or a vibe. So vibe was, if you're going to be in New Orleans, have fun. And, and that's, that's what you do in New Orleans. That's, what, that's their biggest attraction to that city. It's also their biggest economic program. It's show people how, how to have a good time. You eat well, you listen to good music, you dance in the streets, and you just, people are so nice and, and willing to show you how. Where do you think that started? What was the seed of that fun trademark? I think it has to be, yeah, New Orleans is such an interesting city because of its its history. Um, you know, New Orleans is 60% Black. It's the only city in the country that's predominantly Black. And that Black population comes from Africa. It comes from the Caribbean. It comes from South America. And so it, those are people who celebrate. You know, the Europeans came, the, the Spanish, the Germans, the Italians, and the French, and they're rather reserved. But the people from Africa and the Caribbean, they just let it hang out. And so the mixture of all those together, along with the cuisine and their willingness to drink, it's party time. And it's indicated in their jazz festival, in their, of course, Mardi Gras, uh, in the fact that it's a, a festival almost every week in New Orleans. Of course, I know jazz is, is huge there, but I had no idea they have festivals. Do you have a favorite festival that isn't Mardi Gras? Oh, that's a good one. Well, they just had a, a, this past weekend had the Po' Boy Festival, which is you won't find in any other city. I was down there this year for the Essence Festival that happened back in August and saw some of the best African-American entertainment I've ever seen. People having a good time. There's a gumbo festival. I'm all in on festivals about food. There's, I really love the jazz festival. In fact, I went for 30 years straight without missing a single one because it's so interesting. It's a celebration of food. It's a celebration of music from from the black church choirs to number one year, Wynton Marsalis got up and sang with the church choir, and it was just hair-raising. It was so beautiful. Big names like Linda Ronstadt. And this year, next year, 2024, to start off the jazz festival, Rolling Stones are going to mm. So they have pop, they have rock, they have blues, they have jazz. 
and it's just pay one price to get into the ground, which is the New Orleans racetrack, and you can hear just about any kind of music you want. And that's the one price you pay. And when is that usually? Which months? It's from the last week in April through the first weekend in May. Okay, cool. The weekend's are a really big festival party. Yeah. I would love to know who brought the Mardi Gras celebration and when was the first one in New Orleans? Well, the Mardi Gras celebration, you have to understand, is a Catholic celebration. And it was the, the white people from Europe who brought it, but the, the African and Caribbean traditions of dancing and celebrating added to it. And what they, how they started was they decided, the wealthy people decided, the society people, ride through the streets to throw gifts down to the poor people. So they would ride on these big floats through the streets at Mardi Gras time and throw these things out. And that's how it started. Today, it's much more open than that. It's, it's not a society thing. It's a feel-good thing. That's, that's really amazing. You know, Andrew Cuomo, I just heard this quote by Andrew Cuomo today. I'm, I'm just going to share it with you. He said about cities, cities are delicate creatures. They're either growing or they're dying. And when the city starts to lose rich people, they lose their tax base, and which becomes the beginning of an urban death spiral. My sense is that New Orleans will be impervious to that because of its unique culture and the tourism. And I just don't see that ever happening to New Orleans. Would you agree? Absolutely, I agree with that. In fact, since Katrina, people thought New Orleans would die after Katrina. And I think somebody in in the federal government said, well, that's the end of New Orleans. Well, they have come back stronger than ever. The city has just boomed. And it's, it's expanded. There's probably more wealth there now, uh, but that doesn't make the city New Orleans. It's the, the mixture. Absolutely. So I think it's clear to see that when cultures collide, that's where the innovation happens. You mentioned with the Africans and the reserved Europeans, a celebration. And so that created this wonderful new thing and culture. Do you have any knowledge about how at the very, like the very root level, how, and it's a big question, how jazz was created? Because that's a whole new language too. Jazz was sort of created in difficult economic times. It was an escape where people would get together and just play their music. Maybe they would go listen to one person and somebody else would come along. And the, the history of New Orleans jazz is that it's ensemble. And so people who've never played before get together and just play music. It, but it's usually New Orleans has a tradition of brass band that marches through the streets playing things like when the Saints go marching and songs like that. But they would play that type of music with that Dixieland beat. It evolved into a, a, a Creole influence, which would, Creole's tribe influence, but the, but the jazz was too hot for them to influence. So they had to accept the traditional jazz as part of what they did. And so the ensemble form of jazz was the biggest form of jazz because it was an escape from hard times. Mm. And it continued until Louis Armstrong. 
Louis Armstrong then started making a, a point because he played the trumpet better than anybody of one person in the group being the feature of, of the group. And so that changed New Orleans jazz a little bit. But still, if you go down there, you go to the jazz halls like Preservation Hall, you go there to listen to the ensemble, and it is thrilling. Preservation Hall, that's on my bucket list for sure. Yeah, it's yeah, it's on St. Peter Street in, in the French Quarter. My first boyfriend, actually, was a jazz violinist, and he was in an environment where he was around a lot of African-American jazz musicians. And so all of a sudden he fell in love with jazz. And so he's a really successful jazz violinist. But I remember being dragged around to all of his gigs where I had wanted to go to sleep. I was there until 2 a.m. But I am thankful for that because I developed a true love and appreciation for jazz. And so I know that Preservation is, Hall, that, that is the jazz club, is it not? Or are you allowed to say that? It is. It is. You know, it's, it's, it's a hall. It's not a club. And I'll tell you why. They don't serve anything. Okay? You go in, you stand for a set. The next set, people leave. So you get a seat and then you stay as long as you want to and just listen to one set after another. If you want something to drink, I think maybe there's a soda machine in the back. But that, you're not going to get the cocktails or anything like that. So they call it a hall. Yeah, so it's about the music. Yes. So let's talk New Orleans food, just as with the music. It's also a melting pot of food and influences. When did you first become obsessed with New Orleans food? Like which came first, your love for New Orleans food or or becoming a chef? I would say the love of New Orleans food. And I'll tell you why. In 1974, a chef at the big New Orleans restaurant called Commander's Palace, which is uh, one of the best restaurants in New Orleans, decided that he was from Cajun country, and he was cooking French cuisine, and he wanted, he wanted to express his own background. So he opened his own restaurant in the Bridgewater called Cape Paul's Louisiana Kitchen, and he introduced Cajun cuisine to America. And I don't know if you remember how it exploded. Everybody wanted black and red fish. They wanted gumbo. They wanted etouffee. These were terms that they hadn't heard before. Mm. And so I got the opportunity one year. I was working uh, for Shell Oil Company in New Orleans in their employee relations department. And one year for my vacation, two weeks, I got to work in his kitchen, trail with him and watch him work and understand what he was doing. It's a life change, for sure. Uh, because I knew then that I wanted to do what he did, even if I don't cook. I wanted to make people happy. Mm. He was such a wonderful person. He would play with food and go around the kitchen asking people to taste it. If it was okay, he would go out into the restaurant and offer, hi, you want to try this for me? (laughs) It's called and Scott. I just coming up with this recipe. I want to know how it is. (laughs) And people loved him for it. So he had a big influence on me. It made me want to become a chef. Got it. And so how did you get that opportunity working with Shell Oil Company to, to kind of shadow him? I knew somebody. <laughs> ah, 
So you asked for it. Yes, I asked for it, exactly. Because I was so curious. I mean, I ate there several times, always walking out of there, wow, what did I just eat? And I wanted to go see what he was doing and how it was done. I was already cooking since I was seven years old. I really fell in love with what he was doing. I wanted to see how he did. Is he still with us or no? No, he passed away, I would say, five or six years ago. And is the establishment? And his restaurant is now closed. Got it. Okay, so the restaurant is closed. That was my next question. Yeah. Let's talk about your first, I'm assuming, love at first sight in the kitchen. Let's talk about how you became interested in food and your your background and the environment you grew up with. All right. We go way back. When I was three years old, my mom died. All right. My father was out of town most of the time, so I my, I have two sisters. We would spend time with our aunts, our grandmother, my mother's mother. And finally, my grandmother said, let me just raise these kids. You don't have time. You don't know how. So she raised us, and she was stuck in the And I loved her more than anything in the world. And to be in the kitchen with her is such a treat. I even love being in the kitchen doing laundry with her. Aww. So... Um, I can remember the first time I cooked anything. I got home from school. No one was home. I was hungry. I was seven years old. And I looked around. There were, there were no potato chips. There was no Wonder Bread. There was nothing. I opened the refrigerator. There was bacon. I said, do I dare? No, I can't. I don't know why. So I took it out. There was a cast iron skillet on the stove with oil in it. I turned it on, put bacon in, and sat back to watch what happened. <laughs> and this is a seven-year-old now. And the smell of the bacon smokiness in the room, I just got, oh, I'm, I'm doing such a good job. All of a sudden, it started to taste rancid, not rancid, but acrid. It was burning. I thought, I've got to get that bacon out of that hot oil, and I don't know how. So I turned the stove off. I tried to lift the pan, very heavy, and I spilled the grease on my foot. Oh, no. A big burn, which I thought was my foot was dying, and they took it to the doctor. I asked the doctor if he was going to have to cut off my foot. He said, no, your, the foot isn't done yet. Nobody wants to eat a raw foot, so we're, we'll leave it there. And he, he fixed it. But I can remember going home that night, and my grandmother put me to bed. She said, I know you want to cook, and I'm going to help you with that. But just do it when I'm here. Aww. So I fell asleep that night, and I was thinking, I hope I can go to school tomorrow because I want to tell everybody that I cook bacon. <laughs> and after that, my grandmother worked full time. And on Mondays, we always had beans and taters, beans and fried potatoes on Monday because she would come home cooked the beans, which she had put up to soak in the morning before she left. And when she came home, she would cook it. And, we, and then after it was cooked, and we'd eat an early dinner, we would do laundry. That's the way it had to be, because she worked. So one day, one Monday, she, she was running late. She had to rush out. I had watched her soak the beans. So I was probably 10 by then. And so I said, I'm going to put the beans up to soak for her so they'll be ready when she comes home. She didn't get a chance to. So I put them in the pot, added water. I didn't want to go to school that day. I wanted to sit and watch them because those are my beans, not the ones that she did. They were mine. 
And so God will put school on meeting them in, and I looked at it and they were wrinkled. I thought, just like my fingers when they've been in water too long. So I said, I'm going to cook. So I poured the water out, put fresh water in. She always cut an onion in half, put the skin on and put it in. So I, I had a little plastic knife and I sawed it in half, put it in, turned the water on and watched it carefully because I knew I could burn myself. And probably in about 45 minutes, I tested it and the bean was done. So I turned it off and covered it. I didn't put any of the other seasonings in it that she put in it. I just cooked the beans. She came home and she was so moved with what I'd done. She sat down and cried. Said, That's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Aww. And she said, let's finish dinner. And so she put the rest of the seasoning in the beans. And stirred it in and let them simmer for a little while while she made the potatoes. The potatoes weren't like french fries. They were almost like hash browns. That's really what they were, hash browns. Our pockets robbers would call them today. We had dinner. My sisters couldn't believe it. He didn't do that. No, he didn't do that. They gave me a hard time. And I was singing this song that I love to sing called Beans and Taters. Beans and Taters had a fight. Beans not taters out of sight. Peter said, that's all right. Meet me on the corner tomorrow night. <laughs> and my sister, my older sister, Betty, said, it's not supposed to be about beans. It's supposed to be about cornbread, beans and cornbread. I said, I'm sorry. I like taters. And I sang it again really loud, so it would annoy But afterwards, my grandmother said, I think those are the best beans I've ever eaten. And I think she meant And from there... She worked with me. We developed a lot of things. She taught me how to do a pot roast. She taught me how to make pizza. She taught me how to do pasta. She taught me so many things that are still with me today, and I still use what she did. I remember her rice pudding, which was an egg custard pudding. I've never had anywhere else, but I can do it because she taught me how. You know, an interesting thing, when I moved to New Orleans, now we had that beans and taters always on Monday. Go to New Orleans now, every Monday, they have red beans and rice on every restaurant menu in the city. That's a, a family-owned restaurant. Now, McDonald's doesn't have it, of course. But the city that cooks New Orleans we have, has red beans and rice on Monday. And you know why that is? Why? Because it's wash day. The same reason we did beans and taters because of doing laundry, New Orleans did it because it was wash day. They were doing the laundry, and the beans could cook on their own. I love that. I knew I was where I was supposed to be. Yes. Wow. So she was, what was her name? We called her Mamma. Mamma. Okay, so giving her a shout out. I'm sure she's watching over. I feel it every time I cook. Yes. What a huge influence. And this is so common. I see it with so many career paths that it seems like the thing... That thing, that passion, the thing that people end up doing, it either comes as an accident, like you never set out to do that, or it comes, you know, second or something. It's an afterthought almost. And what I found interesting was reading that you used to be an executive for an airline, right? Right. So you had this wonderful incubator of a cooking apprenticeship with your grandmother. And then, so what happened in between your work now as a chef and that middle period? What was the path and how did you get there? Okay, well, one of the paths was working with Paul Prudhomme for two weeks. 
in his Acadia restaurant in New Orleans. And how old were you then, about? I was out of college. I was working for Shell Oil Company at Human Resources. And I did that uh, probably 19, probably about 75, 76. Okay. Then um, I went to work for Air France. And as an executive, and I was there for 25 years. As an executive, I had three passes to anywhere I wanted to go on any airline. Wow. Now, how was that for a gift? So I traveled to 60 countries. And what I did, I didn't go see, yeah, I saw the pyramids of Egypt, but I also tasted the cuisine. I, I would go to the small family-run restaurants. I wouldn't go to the big glamorous ones because I wanted to find out what the people ate yes. in the countries I visited. So I could get a real taste of what their food was because I was so interested in food. I was beginning also during that time to start a little bit of catering on the side out of my apartment. And I would do like a birthday party for somebody or a Christmas party for somebody where they would have maybe 30 guests or a dinner party for 12. And uh, But this was all lessons that I'd learned from my grandmother. So in 1999, I was laid off by a friend because they wanted to bring a French person into my, my job. And I didn't know what to do. I was already in my 50s. And as I would go around looking for other human resources jobs, I would they would read my resume and talk to me over the phone and they said, you sound perfect. The minute I would go into the office with my gray hair, I could see the shades come down. So I said, I'm finished with the corporate world. That's it. Mm-hmm. One day I was sitting and watching television and Jacques Pepin came on, did a commercial for the French culinary. And bing, mm-hmm. that was it. Before that, I had watched Bill Moyer. He's a renowned journalist. He was doing an interview with Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell was a professor of mythology at Sarah Lawrence College. Yes. And he was having a very interesting conversation with him about finding your bliss. So he asked him, if you were to tell a person how to be happy, how would they find their bliss? He would tell him. Oh, and he said, I would tell them, number one, identify what makes them happy. Maybe two things. And I thought about that. And I said, well, what really makes me happy? Food and kids. Well, how can I have a make a living out of food and kids. And then when I saw Jacques Pepin, the French culinary institute, it hit me. I'll become a chef. And I had read a book called Fast Food Nation about the proliferation of fast food places across the country and how it was ruining the diet of kids and that kids of today would not live as long as their parents because the diet was so bad. And I realized I could do something about it because I didn't go through that. But I felt responsible because it was my generation that introduced it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Chef Bobo is the executive chef for the crew of Orpheus in New Orleans, a Mardi Gras parade group founded by jazz musician and entertainer Harry Connick Jr. And since today is the first official day of Mardi Gras, you can check out the crew of Orpheus website and learn more about their parade route at the link below. More from Chef Bobo on Thursday.